0: This is Laura Dearda with the Becker's Dental Plus DSO podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Michael Schwartz, CEO of Specialty Dental Brands. Michael, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today.
1: Thank you. Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, well, I know we got a, a lot to talk about. There's a lot going on in dentistry right now. But, but before we dive into the questions, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background?
1: Sure. I entered the dental industry in 2008. I, I did an industry switch. So after doing undergrad business, I worked in the footwear and apparel industry for over 15 years, both with domestic manufacturers and importers and got to travel the world. Uh, While living in Chicago, I got my MBA at University of Chicago from 2001 to 2004 and switched into the financial services industry, and in 2008, a friend of mine who lived in Ohio called me up one day and said that he had a childhood friend who was a dentist and they were looking to bring in a CEO for their dental practice. And at that time, I I thought that was one of the more bizarre statements I'd ever heard. Um, I grew up in Kansas. The biggest dental office I ever went to as a patient was maybe three chairs. Um, Even when I lived in Chicago, I was going to small Dental offices as a patient, so I wasn't really sure what the DSO industry was, but it was an interesting time. The financial markets were starting to show problems, which we all remember led to the 2009 to 2012 credit crunch and the auto and and the whole recession. Uh, so I went to meet with the doctor in Toledo, Ohio, and realized like his vision of growing what he had started to develop, he had had graduated from dental school and worked with his dad, who was a dentist. He bought his dad out and he had this vision of growing into multiple practices, but also to centralize all the administrative parts of the dental group so he could work chair side. And as he opened second, third, fourth, fifth offices, he didn't have to keep duplicating the same processes at each office. So I started with him in 2008. That was Corner Dental, um, and we grew that business from 2008 to 2012, and had an opportunity to sell that to a another group who was in the process of, of partnering with a private equity firm for growth financing. And that was kind of the the first uh, my first four way foray into uh, the DSO industry. Since then. Um, I've run two more groups. My current group is specialty dental brands. Um, I've been here since July of 2018 and we focus on pediatric orthodontics and oral surgery.
0: Wow, fascinating. So, you know, being in the dental industry after being in in a few other areas and just kind of getting into it, it seems like almost on a whim, um, what has really kept you in the dental space?
1: I think it's, you know, the, the exciting part of it is there's when you go into a cottage industry, which I would still describe dentistry as a cottage industry. It's obviously advanced a lot since 2008. But what I found really interesting was between prior companies and, and industries I'd worked in, and then also with the business, you know, the formal business school training. Bringing some of those processes, techniques, ideas, management styles into the dentistry um, industry, a lot of those were almost cutting edge things that are that are just tried and true practices in a manufacturing business. Um, you know, even in a in the medical field, I've always said dentistry's about 15 years behind medicine. So when you think about, I know in early on thing I did at my first DSO was putting in an inventory management system, almost like a pick system um, from a company called Cubex. And those were very, that was very run of the mill business in some industrial businesses and even in hospitals. But in dentistry, people hadn't seen it, they were starting to get into, oh, maybe we should put barcodes in the supply room, or the supply closet. But we actually put in full-scale machines in our offices that looked like big – they looked like the vending machines you now see at the airports that have Best Buy, like headphones, all that stuff. But in 2009, it was pretty cutting-edge, and we would be able to set min and maxes, connect directly directly in with Henry Schein, so when our par levels got down, it would automatically order from the system without any human interaction. So – you know, taking some, some things that have been proven out in other industries and bringing them into dentistry has been really exciting because it's allowed, um, it's, it's allowed us to really move our companies along the, the growth path a little bit faster. And you don't have to completely reinvent the wheel. You're, you're taking best practices from other industries that I've been in and bringing them into dentistry.
0: Absolutely, that, that's fascinating and fantastic to hear. And What a kind of an inspiring journey you've had. Now, thinking about where we're at today, what are some of the big trends that you're following right now?
1: I really like the te- <clears throat> the technology that's going on in in, in the dental field. Um, I think we're seeing bits and pieces of across all parts of our of, of industries today, and it's in our daily lives, but. You know, the couple ones that pop to the front of my mind in dentistry is AI. I mean, you hear people talk about AI a lot. Um, Everybody has a different definition of what AI is. I think what we're seeing in dentistry of how AI is coming into play, it's starting out more on kind of the x ray diagnostic technology. Um, The ability, when I think about AI, I kind of, I kind of weave in machine learning, and when you can when you can build a database um, or some type of repository where you could upload you know hundreds of thousands of x-rays and then apply the AI and the machine learning to that, I think what you're seeing some of these companies do is it's allowing doctors to have almost a robotic assistant that's helping diagnose and seeing things because it's referencing, instead of just the doctor's eyes, it's refer- referencing, you know, this database of hundreds of thousands of x-rays where the, the machine learning can say, hey, when we see this, when we see X on this x-ray, we know that that means Y issue. You know, that's a caries or that's a potential need for a root canal. Um, So that's really exciting. I think it's really big in the general practice model. Um, I think it'll start weaving in a little bit more into specialty practices. But I think that technology, the next step from just reading x-rays will be going into kind of machine learning AI treatment planning. So One of the big things I think is, is coming down the road, and I don't know if it's one year, two year, five years, but if you think about orthodontics, um, you, take, you take a set of photos and you take x-rays when you're doing the consultation. During the process of moving teeth, you take progress photos, sometimes progress panoramics or SAS, 3D, cone beam. And then you have finished, you know, all your finishing stuff. As that information continues to get loaded into these databases, I think what you're going to see is the ability for orthodontists and and other practitioners that do orthodontic work of the ability to take those initial x-rays and photos and load them into your system. And then through the machine learning, it's going to help treatment plan the case. Um, it's going to say, hey, we've seen, we've seen this issue, if it's class one, class two, whatever the, the structural issues are, and we know by using bracket placement here or wires here or aligners, however you're going to do it, you'll be able to shorten that time of treatment planning those cases and you'll, you'll have kind of a treatment planning guide. So I kind of think that's where where this is going with the AI is first on the diagnostic and then into the treatment planning. And so that's that's a pretty cool, um, you know, new technology out there. And then I think on the other technology front is just, you know, we call it RPA, stands for robotic process automation. Um, You know, this is taking kind of manual, Repetitive processes and tasks, and if you think about dental, the dental industry, the DSO industry, you know that's that's uh, verifying insurance. It's posting the insurance claims into the to the files. Um, it's it's uh, you know adding the the coverage table into your software. Things that are very manual, and I think you saw. DSOs over the last let's call it 15 years. The first step was using a business process outsourcing company, um, who were generally saying, you know, they have a they have a BPO center in India or maybe it's in Central America or the Caribbean or somewhere. And you're basically offshoring work. So you go from you know with a BPO they charge you per you know per instance. So if you wanted them to call the insurance company and get the breakdown of the of the insurance and verify it and then load it in your system, they might charge you three dollars for every one they did. You know, maybe it was dollar fifty. It could be whatever it was. Um but I think the next step to that is true automation where you don't need a person calling you have a a script, you know, you have a robot kind of, we see this all the time on live chats and everything, these bots, you have a bot that can go in, get that information, pull it down, enter it into your system. And I think for for the dental industry to keep up with other parts of healthcare and all the other challenges you have where with other expenses going up, that RPA is gonna be more and more the norm. It's, it's just a, it's a little bit more difficult right now because the dental insurance carriers, even though some of those names also have health insurance, they're treated as two different businesses. So we started to see pushback pre-COVID. Um, some pretty large people that I won't name um, they started declining calls that were coming from third-party call centers. So all of us DSOs that were using BPOs to do insurance verification, the, we were getting letters from insurance carriers saying, we're not going to take calls if you outsource your calls, like we're going to block them. So there is this weird dynamic in the industry where the dental insurance carriers, they don't want to make it easier to file claims. Um, so they're blocking ways for that DSOs are moving forward to handle the volume they have to do. They're also not as automated connected as if you, when you go into your primary care physician, you go into your primary care physician, a lot of those medical softwares have a direct link into the carriers or into the clearing houses to populate that information. The dental carriers haven't invested in that. Um, So it's still a very manual process of calling or logging onto their website and doing that. So I think that's why you're seeing this push for RPA, because just the environment of hiring people, the cost of of doing that, and and just repetitive tasks all day long, it's much easier to do that with an RPA process. And And I think you're seeing that in a lot of software, you know, whether it's, office 365, you know, they call it power automate. There's a bunch of different products out there, but there's a big push in productivity software is how can you create automated processes, you know, build your own automation workflow. So, those two trends, the the AI and the RPA, I think are two of the more exciting things going on from a from a DSO standpoint going forward. The last thing I'm I'm watching for in our industry is kind of You know, it's not tech fancy or anything, but I do see the there's been a push over the last several years to expand dental school class size again. um, And new dental schools coming on board and also in the residency programs, you know, adding the size of the residency programs of how many residents they are going to take. And I think that's a very interesting trend because. I think we can all admit there's an access to care issue in the, in in dental in general in the United States, but it's really focused on, you know, outside of the primary, secondary markets, maybe even tertiary markets. It's, it's a rural problem and it's certain parts of lower household income areas of cities. So when you hear this discussion of, do we need more dentists or not? A lot of times existing dentists will say, we don't need any more, but then you'll see statistics where like in Western Texas, there might be one dentist for, you know, 200 miles. I just saw something on, on one of your newsletters, where in the state of Washington, you know, they were looking for a dentist because the one dentist in this area had retired and there's no care. Um, what worries me about the dental class size is, and this is a you know this is a trend that's been going on for a while, is the dental schools are not getting as many patients coming in to the dental schools. So as a dental student, your truly hands-on in clinic experience, you're getting less than somebody who graduated in the 90s and even early 2000s. So I do see, you know, it's a, it's a positive and a negative. Um, I, I think the dentists coming out now aren't as confident with their hand skills. And so a lot of those dentists are choosing to go into DSOs because it's similar to going into a general practice residency. They can go into a DSO. Now they have patients. They can be under the wing of a senior doctor and get some of that training and their schedule can be maneuvered you know to handle that up that uptick on the learning curve but if you talk to a dentist that graduated before 2000 they saw you know a lot more patients during dental school than the students today do so i'm i'm watching that a little bit to see how that's getting rectified as schools are adding even more you know class sizes going from 80 cl- 80 students to 120, and then new schools popping up. You know how is that going to impact the true hands-on training? You know the academic training, the didactic part is fine. They're getting a lot of that training, but how much of the other stuff are they working on? Truly live patients in the chair.
0: Absolutely, I think that's so a, really, that a lot. really great point. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely. But it's fascinating to think about both from the technology side as well as, you know, the dental shortage and adding dental, um, you know, more dental spots in schools and those kinds of things, or the, excuse me, the um, experience that they're able to get at at those types of facilities. For um, when you mentioned dental schools aren't getting as many patients coming through, is that just kind of a a unique trend or is there something that they're doing to um, have that you will be less than it was in the past.
1: My feeling, and I don't have statistics on this, so this is just my gut from being being around this for so long, is, you know, it's a general, there's a general kind of fear of going to the dentist from a lot of patients in the country. I mean, if you look at those, the one statistics I know is adults, only about 65% or so of adults go to the dentist once a year. And that, that number hasn't moved a lot in 20 years. Um, so I think about this is, as you see some of the larger DSOs, you know, whether it's Aspen or, or anybody like that, you know, a lot of the larger DSOs, a lot of DSOs take Medicaid. And I think mm-hmm. for a long time, people that were on Medicaid, that was the main population base for dental schools. Um, because if you go back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, when Medicaid came out and the coverage started, um, a lot of dentists didn't participate. You know, a lot of dentists up until the 90s didn't participate in commercial insurance. So if you were if you had Medicaid as your as your coverage, you were going to dental schools. And I think now you know one of the benefits of DSOS is to increase the access to care for all parts of the population. And so if I put myself in in the shoes of somebody that has Medicaid coverage, and I already maybe have a fear of going to the dentist, and now I can go to what, you know, to a DSO to, you know, that's a kind of a private practice dentist versus going to the dental school where I kind of know that they're learning how to do things. I kind of bring it to the analogy of, people going to, to beauty school, barber school, and having a hard time for people coming in to get a haircut by somebody that's learning, think about the fear of dentistry and then saying, well, I'm going to go. And I know that this might be the first time this person's doing the procedure. So I think, you know, the unintended consequences of the DSOs um, expanding access to care unintentionally hurt the flow of patients to the dental school. Because when they had, if they were in an area where they could go to, you know, a non-academic um, treatment, Aspen, whoever, private practice dentist, or go to the dental school, they're probably choosing the non-dental school. So I think this is just a, I think it's just a way of, of life, you know, it's, it's kind of that fear of, this is where the the medicine, medicine and dental are totally opposite. because. Uh, As we talked before, I lived in Chicago for a long time. You know, everybody holds Northwestern health system in high regards, and it's considered a teaching hospital. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, I'm now in Ann Arbor. I have University of Michigan hospitals, very good teaching hospitals. It seems on the medical side, people really like these teaching hospitals, and they know when you go in you're going to have residents rotating through and people doing fellowships and you have the attendings and all this stuff but yet in dental it's like there's this there's this belief of like I don't want to go to the dental school because they're just learning you know but it's a similar concept it's just people view dental different than medicine and it's it's just very interesting to me because people flock to teaching hospitals as patients But on the dental side, they don't want to go to the dental schools. So I think that's going to continue to be an issue. And I think, you know, with technology and, you know, there's all this talk of this, you know, with virtual reality and augmented reality and the metaverse and all that. I think you're going to see, you know, uh, Case Western did a little bit of this way back when, when there was this program called Second Life. And it was kind of augmented reality back then, but it was like 1.0 and nothing like it is today. But they were trying to to do dental training in this virtual life. And I think you're going to see more of that with with this, where the metaverse is going. I think you're going to have dental schools looking into that and saying, we could have our people work on virtual patients um, through this augmented reality. And we know how, you know, this virtual reality and augmented reality, how real it looks these days. So I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if you see some cutting edge dental schools explore that as it gets a little bit more adoption in the country.
0: Absolutely. I think that's so interesting to think about and, you know, will will be very fascinating to watch the trends over the next few years. Is there anything else that you're excited about for the future of dentistry?
1: I think it's just. You know, I think one thing that, that a lot of us talk about is the sustainability of of dentistry, of it weathering um, different macroeconomic events. I think um, a lot of us always put it in the framework of, of financial events, you know, the recession of, of 2009 to 2012, you know, what happened back in Y2K with the dot-com bust. I think this was really... The first time in in most people's lives that you had to deal with a pandemic. Um, Our business was up double digits. Um, I'm not saying every dentist, I know a lot of general dentists that focus mostly on adult patients. I'm sure people that focused on a little more cosmetic probably have had a rough go um, during the pandemic. 70% of our business is kids' dentistry. Um, And I always said to people, you know, dentistry is very recession proof. Kids dentistry is even more, and I think now I can add besides recession proof, it's pandemic proof. Um, you know, people when it comes to their kids with anything, whether it's sports, um, school, healthcare, whatever it is, you know, parents will sacrifice for themselves before it's it's got to be at desperate times before they sacrifice for their kids, sacrifice things that their kids need and so we saw that you know we saw that over the pandemic i think you did see certain parts of the country um adult patient flow went down and i know the ada was doing you know calls every week and and their chief economist was doing stuff but on the, the kids part of dentistry um you know as soon as we were open people were coming in you know and we you, know, you had to change things but there weren't people saying well i know my kid needs braces or ortho treatment, but it's a pandemic. I'm not going to do it. You know, Orthodontists, whether they're private practice or DSOs, have always worked in a payment plan type of philosophy. Um, and, and people view orthodontics as kind of a once in a lifetime event. So we didn't see a fall off. And I think um, that's exciting to me. I think it's, it's proven out some of the things we all thought. It makes me feel good about the future. I do think the, you know, the consolidation of the industry has sped up. I know some people might view that as a negative. Um obviously I'm in the DSO industry. I view it as a positive. But I do think some of the some of the points that that people that might be viewing it a little negative focus on, um, they're missing out on some of the potential benefits. And I think some of the benefits, you know. Going back to the old um, MBA part of, of Porter's Five Forces, but um, anybody that went to business school or did undergrad business would know. I, I think there'd been a big um, there there. It was out of sync between supplier power and buyer power, um, and I think what the DSO industry has done is is given buyer power so you know, dentists as part of DSOs have more ability and more of an even playing field. When we talk with manufacturers, when we talk with distributors, I think for a long time, it was the other way around. And um, just because, you know, it was a very fragmented industry, it's 200,000 dentists and, you know, maybe consolidation now's in the low to mid twenties. Um, So there's a lot of consolidation to go, but I think what, what the pandemic really showed was there was a lot of dentists who, you know, kind of said the administrative part is a little taxing, but it wasn't bad enough to really decide if they should join a DSO or they should sell to a, a younger doctor. I think the pandemic and all the administrative part of the pandemic, you know, the what do you do with PPP loans, um, how do you keep your staff, what about benefits, you know, all the things that happened that were non-clinical. I think a lot of doctors said, you know what, this is the time. And so there was a lot of doctors that were probably on the fence of, of when they should do something. And the pandemic did accelerate that. And I And I do think there's a belief from, you know, probably everybody in the country unless your head's in the sand is we'll probably see another something like this in our lifetime. You know, it's not like, I don't think we're going to think this is like the Spanish flu and then we go a hundred years without something. I think the, the belief is, you know, this could be an every five year event or every 10 year event or 15. And so I think doctors at this point have said, you know what, they the benefits of being in a DSO, um, Would really help, you know, having people that can help with, you know, taking care of your staff to handle the financial load of what's going on in the practice. If we had to close down a practice for two, four, six weeks, you know, that's not the doctor trying to figure out how to do all that. And so to me, that's exciting. Um, I think it starts closing the gap from what I said before of. Dentistry being 15 years behind medicine, I think that gap's closing, but it's going to take, um, you know, kind of the DSO industry to lead that. And and as the DSOs grow and I've heard, you know, when I got into the industry in 2008, maybe there was 30 something DSOs, maybe. Um, in 2018, I was at the Dykema conference. I think they said at that time there was maybe 80. I heard somebody say this past year was up to 120. Um, So as that's grown, a lot of talent is being brought in from other areas of healthcare. And I think that's um, some of the things they've seen in other parts of the healthcare industry will help close that gap. So that's, that's pretty exciting also.
0: Absolutely. Wow. It's just a, a great time for the dental industry and DSOs in particular. Now, uh, briefly, before we wrap up our conversation, how do you anticipate okay. growing uh, specialty dental brands in the future?
1: So I look at our growth as, as kind of two different <clears throat> paths. It's um, there's adding more doctor partners, you know, bringing in more on the on the M&A front of having people affiliate with us. And then there's your legacy business, which I look at is how do you grow your same office numbers, you know, year over year, quarter over quarter. So I think on the m a front, it's, you know, all the stuff I just mentioned. There's there's more doctors looking to find a partner now. Um, there's so many options for them. So there is somebody that fits everyone. Um You know, we, especially dental brands, we believe in a partnership model. So when our when we talk with a potential partner um, and we end up doing a deal, they roll over a a percentage of equity. So they become part they stay partners. Um, But there's all sorts of models out there. So any doctor that's looking is with one hundred and twenty options out there, they're going to find somebody that fits exactly what they want. Um, so the M&A front I think is very robust when it comes to your legacy business, I think, and, and this is any part of the dental industry and it could be retail also, you know, it's, and it's anything because same stores is a big retail number. Um, <clears throat> you look at kind of volume and price, right? And, you know, one day, one way to grow your business on the, on the revenue side is to raise your prices. Well, that's a little more difficult in dentistry, especially if you, are in that work with insurance companies. So, as a as a in the, as a dentist, if you participate, you don't really have pricing power. As DSOs, we're constantly negotiating with the insurance companies, trying to raise our fees a little bit, um, but you know it's a tough battle so i think you know we, a lot of most dental groups and dental offices independent dentists focus on volume side which is how do we attract more patients um you know if you're on general dentistry we just talked about only 65 percent of the population goes to the dentist once a year that's a big uh, untapped market that other 35 percent so how do you market more efficiently to them how do you figure out what needs are there Um, you could have a very loyal patient base in adult dentistry that doesn't come in for preventative work, but anytime they have a problem, they come to you. So you have to, you know, you have to look at other industries again, you know, a lot of industries on the retail side go into customer segmentation, you know, take that, take a look at that in your practice. Who are my, you know, who are my go-to preventative patients that come in twice a year you know those people. Every once in a while, they're going to have some restorative to do. But I also have a. You know, you'll also have a percentage of your population that are just restorative patients. And how do you keep in front of them? And then I think it's it's the the other part of volume is is there an opportunity for any additional services? Um, and and I'm not talking upselling because I don't believe in it's healthcare. You should do what is. Needed for the patient, um, but there's an argument for fluoride, right? I mean, fluoride you know, in in kids dentistry, it's 100% covered, but in adults, it's not. Well, there's a good part of the population that lives in areas that are on well water that are not getting. I live on well water, um, so there's no fluoride in my water. Um, there's municipalities that don't have fluoride. Um, you know learning a little bit more of your patient, it wouldn't take an assistant that long to say, oh, are you on well water? Or are you on city water? Oh, I'm on well water. Did you know that well water doesn't have fluoride? Fluoride protects, you know, the enamel of the teeth, da, 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 da. We can do fluoride. It's only $25. You know, I think it'd be really worth it. So, you know, some people might call that upselling, but I call it, you know, it's a needs-based you're, you're identifying, you're not trying, you're not just saying give every patient adult fluoride. You're saying ask that one question while you're talking to them. You've got time. And if all of a sudden it's like, hey, anybody on well water, we should talk to them about fluoride. So that's another way on a volume side is, you know, instead of just having the exam X-ray profy, you might have exam fluoride X-ray prophy. And you've added one more service, um, and then you know you, you you focus on marketing. I think everybody gets beat over the head on marketing, so I don't need to talk about that. And I think the last thing is we are going to have to continue to evaluate the dental insurance um, companies. And I think what the way I look at it is, you try to partner with them and and get. Um, get them to raise their rates a little bit but we can't deny in the dental industry wages are going up we all talked about ppe for the last you know 24 months those costs have gone way up and when you don't have the ability to control your pricing and if the if the dental networks are not going to increase their fee schedule and you have 10 percent increase on your costs you, at some point, you get squeezed too much, and I think unfortunately, if that squeeze continues to happen, you're going to see more dentists and I think you'll see it on the in the independent side first before you would see it on the d s o side but you're going to see people dropping out of network. Um, we saw it in medicine a little bit, you know we all have heard about the concierge um primary care providers that just said, "You know what?" I can't do it anymore. The way it's going, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a concierge practice and I'm gonna charge a membership fee, um, but I'll only have you know 800 patients instead of 3,000. I think dental is gonna have to reckon with that if we continue to see the wage inflation and the the tightening of the labor force, along with the supply chain issues and all the input costs going up. I think at some point you know, dentists aren't going to work for free. So your only choice at that point is going to have to look at your insurance network participation and see where it makes sense to go out of network.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a really great point, Michael. And, you know, just so many different things to think about and ways to look at growth and development and how to build a business that really is thinking of the patients and making sure that they're having access to care as well as Thinking about the dentist and the um the practice and, and where you know they can make sure they're able to sustain and continue providing services for the community. So thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. I really appreciate you being here. This has been a great discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon.
1: Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Take care.